the end of this chapter finishes, uh, well, it finishes the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth by bringing us to the birth of John the Baptist. And so what we have is the birth and then the song that Zechariah sings uh, in praise, in praise to God for everything that he is bringing to pass. So let me read this passage for us. If you're able, would you please join me in standing as we hear the reading of God's holy word together. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that your spirit would guide us and direct us, teach us and exhort us to see the treasures of your word, to believe them with all our heart, and so to draw near to our Savior, Jesus Christ, even as he has first drawn near to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this year, uh, our family, Aubrey, got us a new book of Advent readings. Uh, that we're working our way through as we get closer to Christmas. The book is called All Creation Waits. It's about waiting, because Advent is a season of waiting. And so each of these readings is from nature, and each one focuses on uh, a different animal and its preparations for winter and what it does as it waits for the return of spring. So the first reading we did was about a turtle, and about how that turtle swims down to the bottom of the pond and buries itself in the mud, and how it it slowly drops its body temperature and there's less and less oxygen in the water as the days go by, and it's cold and it's dark, and it feels like death. 
And that turtle is waiting for the return of the light, longer days, warmth, and more oxygen in the water when it will again wake from its torpor and return to life at the top of the pond. Because waiting is all about Advent. Excuse me, Advent is all about waiting. It's a season of waiting. It's a season when we put ourselves back in the shoes of the Israelites of old who are waiting for the, the fulfillment of the promises of God. But we're waiting now, too. We're waiting now as we wait for the second advent of Jesus Christ, his second coming to his people when he will finally complete the great work which he has already begun, when he will bring all things to their full fulfillment. Advent is a a season of waiting, of expectation, of anticipation. And Christmas is about arrival. Christmas is about the joy of the arrival of the Son of God on the scene. Waiting is often so hard. Just ask any kid at Christmas time. Waiting is hard. And yet it's so good for us. It's so good for us to to wait and to learn. In the passage that we read today, it's about the end of the waiting. Zechariah has been waiting for this moment, no doubt for nine long months while he hasn't been able to speak. But much more than that, all the people of Israel have been waiting for this moment for centuries as they await the fulfillment of the promises. And now it's coming to pass and it's here and and John is born first and, and Zechariah sings. He sings a song of praise. And he doesn't, well, he says maybe one word about John and the entire rest of the song is about God's faithfulness to his people. And he worships and he adores God for his redemption. And what I see in this passage is three things, of course, three virtues that the waiting has taught Zechariah and that I hope it teaches us. It taught him faith, praise, and hope. Faith, praise, and hope, three virtues that we learn in the waiting. When we read this story in this chapter, it it, it comes back now to Zechariah. We started with Zechariah earlier in chapter 1, and now it comes back to Zechariah. Here's four reasons I like Zechariah. He was a religious guy, like me. He was kind of slow of heart to believe, also often like me. He received mercy, like me, and he learned from it, like I hope to do as well. I find a lot to to appreciate about Zechariah and uh, some similarities with him here. If you remember the first time we met Zechariah earlier in the chapter, he was introduced as a priest who is well advanced in years. Uh, He's a priest, so we know he's a religious person. He knows God. He serves God. He's committed and dedicated his life to the service of the Lord. And yet, we also met a man who was slow to believe. Some people are very quick to believe. And blessed are you if you are quick to hear and to believe. Some other people are a little slow. They take their time. They need to process. They need to investigate Uh, they gather the evidence. And if that is you, then we have a friend here in Zechariah for you. Although we did see what happened to Zechariah when he was slow to believe, he was struck with muteness for nine months, and, and we said God did not condemn him for his slowness or his lack of immediate faith. Instead, God disciplined him. God was discipling Zechariah in order to teach him how to trust. And this is, to some extent, God's usual way of doing things. 
He brings trials into our lives in order to accomplish his own purposes. And so we look at them two ways. We can say, yes, it's a trial. And so it hurts, but also it's God's mercy to us. It's his mercy in, in, in discipling and teaching and shaping us in doing for us exactly what he knows is necessary to teach us how to trust, how to wait, how to hope, and how to praise. And I want us to make sure we see this. If, if we had only read the first stories earlier in the chapter about Zechariah and the angel appearing and Zechariah doubting, uh, if that is all we knew, we wouldn't be able to see God's purposes in that trial in Zechariah's life. Right? We wouldn't see what God was doing out of it. It's only when we get to the end of the chapter here when Zechariah is now able to speak again and we see the outcome. Now we see what God was up to. Now we know something of God's purposes in Zechariah's life because we see Zechariah comes out of the trial full of faith. He's praising God for his faithfulness to his people. And that's so important because some of you are still in the first part of the chapter in your own lives. You're in that place where the trial has perhaps begun and you feel like you're walking through it and you're not yet to the point where you're able to see God's purposes in it. Right? You're in the midst of the trial, but you're not yet at the place where you can see the purpose. You can look back at it and say, okay, now I see what God was up to in that. And we recognize, okay, it was painful at the time, all discipline is, but we'll eventually see it as also merciful from the per perspective of God's faithful purposes at his sovereign will for us in Christ Jesus. And the reality is sometimes we don't get to that point until heaven. We won't get to that point where we're able to have a sense of perspective and seeing the whole picture and looking backwards and saying, I see what God was up to in bringing that particular hardship or suffering into my life. Right? That's, we all want to get there. We want to understand. Right? It's hard to, to be suffering and not know the why. But that's where we are oftentimes. And sometimes it won't be till heaven that we get to see the big picture. Which means God has given us this chapter. Right? It's useful to study the life of Zechariah because we get to see what God is up to. We get to see that God had a purpose for Zechariah. He was doing something good. Zechariah comes out the end of his trial more Christ-like than he was before. More trusting, more faithful, perhaps more hopeful. As Romans 5 tells us, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Which means God has a purpose if there is suffering. Right? He's up to something. There's an end goal that God is working in. So here's the story. We come back to Zechariah about nine months later, and Luke tells the story of the ceremony where the baby now is circumcised and named. It's interesting because we remember Gabriel told Zechariah he would not be able to speak until all these things come to pass. Right? We all assume it's the birth of the baby. Well, here, uh, John is eight days old. He's been born for a week now, and Zechariah still can't speak. So just think, your wife's entire first pregnancy and the first week of having a new baby in the house, and he can't speak. That's got to be a terribly inconvenient time not to be able to speak. Right? You're changing the diaper, wife's in the other room, you could really use a hand. You're on your own. Can't call for help. There's no backup coming. But that's Zechariah for you. But Luke takes us in here to the naming ceremony. 
Because this is where we learn if the discipline has had its effect or not. This is where we learn how Zechariah comes out of the trial. Does it make him more humble, more trusting, more grateful? Or does it make him bitter? Trials tend to do one or the other. We walk through a period of suffering and it either makes us bitter or it makes us humble. Or a lot of the black churches in South Carolina, they say it makes you bitter or it makes you better. It's one or the other. The trial is going to have some effect on your heart. And this is where we see what it's done for Zechariah. Because here's this moment. It's time to give him a name. Everyone assumes he's going to be called Zechariah like his father. They're going to have a little junior. And Elizabeth says no. His name is going to be John. And everyone has no idea what to do. They look at Zechariah to see what does he think about this. And and he takes his uh, tablet, his iPad of the day, and he writes his name shall be called John. And that's the moment of obedience. He's obeying the word of Gabriel. He's doing what Gabriel told him to do in naming his son John. And it's at that moment it says, his tongue is loosed and he praises God. Blessing God. The very first thing Zechariah does with his newly found powers of speech is to praise the Lord. And right in that moment is where we know whether the trial accomplished its purpose or not. As soon as it ended, the first thing he did was to to speak blessing God for redemption. We see he doesn't come out cursing God, but praising God. And you see what his song is about. It's about redemption. It's about what God has done in, in faithfulness to his promises on behalf of his people, saving his people. You know who praises God for redemption? People who know that they need to be redeemed. Which means Zechariah has come out of this trial and he's not bitter at the Lord. He's not working up his own excuses. He's not building his own case of his own self-righteousness and how unjust this is that he suffered for nine months. He comes out of this trial and he says, thank the Lord that he redeems his people. Thank the Lord that when there's people like me who are slow to believe, slow to have faith, we have a Savior. And he's praising God. And that's that's the second virtue that this time of trial and waiting and anticipation has engendered in Zechariah's life is he sings a song of praise. And it's not about John. Right? Brand new dad, long anticipated. He sings a song and it's not about his son. It's about his savior. John is mentioned, but even when John is mentioned, the great thing about John is that he's preparing the way for Jesus. Right? He's making straight the paths for the Lord. So again, we just... To reflect on this for a moment, Zechariah, he could have been cursing God, right, coming out of a trial like this and the difficulties in his life. Or what's the other natural response? To be caught up in the joy of the moment, thinking about his son. Right? He could be cursing God, he could be praising his son. He doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't do either of those things because his heart has been humbled. And a humble heart neither curses God nor delights in these temporary gifts. Uh, think on James 1.4. James 1.4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. See, what's that full effect? How, how do we know when steadfastness has had its full effect? How do we know when it's accomplished what God gave it to us to accomplish? When it's done its job, 
And I think we know this way. We know because our heart is growing in humility. It's growing in humility. In Zechariah, we see in Zechariah a heart that's been humbled. Because when you're humbled, the events of your life are no longer about you and your kingdom and your desires, but they're about God bringing his kingdom. To think only about John, right, the baby, what it means for him, would be to think about his own kingdom, right? What does this mean for me? How does this change my status in the community? How does this fact reflect on who I am and the way I'm perceived? That would have been to thinking about himself and his kingdom. Instead, we see in this song that he sings, his heart is focused on God and his kingdom. It's not about himself anymore. He sings about God's kingdom. And, and what I see is this, and what I feel is this, that there is a wonderful level of both emotional and spiritual stability to be found when your heart is humbled and you learn what it is to seek first the kingdom of God. When by nature, which we all do this by nature, naturally if we are seeking our own kingdom, uh, we tend to go one of two ways. Success will make us proud failure will make us despair. And honestly, the success is probably worse. To become proud, to become arrogant, to become self-righteous. But when you seek first the kingdom of God, we kind of get off that that seesaw of going back and forth between either pride or despair, and we can say, it's not about me one way or the other, but it's about what God is doing in me, through me, around me, because of Christ, for Christ, through Christ. It's about God pursuing his kingdom, and that is a stable course because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Zechariah is singing a song and he's praising and blessing God because he has saved and redeemed his people. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's the first note of joy after the end of the trial is that God has redeemed him and all his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. And so much in this is about God's faithfulness to God's purposes. That's what Zechariah is thinking about at the end of all this, is God's faithfulness. Verse 70, he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72, the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. 73, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear. You see, he sees now that first God has been faithful. God is always faithful. He spoke, he promised, he fulfilled. There was a long time of waiting. And the waiting often feels a little bit like death. There's this long period. We don't see anything happening. We're not getting the results we're hoping for. But he, he praises him that God is faithful. God is faithful in the midst of the waiting. And he says, this is what God has done. He's purchased our freedom that we might serve him without fear. He has purchased our freedom that we might serve him without fear because that is freedom. That is the only true freedom because the deepest bondage we ever know is bondage to self. Our sin to our self And the most profound freedom we have then is freedom to walk with God. Freedom to be free of ourselves, our sin, our fallenness, and free to serve God and to do so without fear. 
it's, it's easy to slip into thinking that freedom means freedom to pursue me and everything about me, right? to live my life, to do what I want to do on my time schedule. The Bible would say that's actually some of the deepest bondage you can get yourself into, is to be a slave to your own desires. And the deepest freedom you can know is to serve God and to walk with Christ. And Christmas is about being set free. And therefore we have hope. Hope is the third virtue that waiting teaches us. Hope. Christmas is about a light that shines into the darkness. Christmas is about a light shining into a dark place. We remember Isaiah 9. Right? One of the most well-known Christmas prophecies, Isaiah 9, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That's such a vivid picture that here's the people and the whole land is filled with darkness. And Isaiah says a light is going to break into that darkness. A light is going to shine on them. Uh, This is is the work of Christ. This is the promise. The redeeming work of Christ is the light that is breaking into a land of deep darkness. And it's not speaking literally, of course, he's, he's speaking primarily of what we would call spiritual darkness, right? Because apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead, we're spiritually broken, we're spiritually in bondage, lost and wandering, but uh, it, it's more than just that. Uh, it's also everything that goes along with our spiritual darkness. It's all, all the, the loss of hope. Sorry, my notes are out of order. It's the darkness of this world that, that sin brings into it. It's all the darkness that you are dwelling in. Whatever darkness, whatever shadow uh, you're walking through, whatever valley which is so dark, it's, it's sin infecting every area of life and we suffer because of it, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And here's what Zechariah is praising God for, that in Christ the light shines into the darkness. And he says we're not lost in that anymore. That in Christ, the mercy of God is breaking through. Remember the Bible says, God's mercies are new for you every morning. God's mercies for you are new every morning. At least one part of that is that Christ is for you every morning. Every morning, the mercy of God is for you there in Christ. The light that shines into your darkness. The light that says there is freedom and there is hope in Christ. And Zechariah uses this imagery, verse 78, beautiful imagery of the sunrise shall visit us from on high, giving light to those who sit in darkness. Now I have to admit, I really love sunrises. I think they're beautiful, they're peaceful, I love them. I very rarely see them. I'm not a morning person, so unless I make some very intentional and sustained effort, I don't see a lot of sunrises. I miss them. But when I think of really longing for a sunrise, I think of being camping and having to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And when you're camping and you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, it's very uncomfortable, right? Because it's, it's usually, we're up in the mountains, it's cold, right? You, you have to put your shoes on and go outside and it's very dark. And to be honest, it can be a little scary, right? To just go out there in the woods and traipse through the woods in the middle of the night to get to the bathroom. So I have a strategy, I hold it, and I don't go. (laughs) 
I wait and I pray and I, I meditate on Psalm 127 as the watchman waits, as, waits for morning, so my soul waits for thee, O God. Right? And, and you're just longing for the coming of the sunrise to bring some light so you can see where you're going and not be afraid of the bears. Right? And that's a, a very silly illustration. But there's this longing that we have. There's a longing that you have when you're, you feel as though your life is sitting in the darkness. And it's scary, and it's cold, and it's uncomfortable, and your heart is longing for the sunrise. Your heart is longing for some ray of light to break in. Something that's going to, to bring some relief in the midst of all the darkness. You're surrounded by the, the sin, the effects of the sin, the pain that we, that we deal with because of the sin in and around our lives, our sins against other people, their sins against us. That's what it is to be in the darkness and longing for the sunrise to come. And here's what Zechariah is praising God for, that in the coming of Christ, a light shines in the darkness. He says the coming of Christ is the beginning of the sunrise, that with Christ we're no longer in darkness. There's freedom, there's hope, there's light that's coming. And he says in verse 79 that when the light comes, it is given to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death for this reason, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The light is given to, get, to guide our feet into the way of peace because one of the realities of darkness is you can't see, right? You stumble, you trip, it's hard to go anywhere, you get lost, it's frustrating and scary. Uh, but Jesus is the light that gives us guidance. And he guides us into the way of peace. Now think about that. Because in the Bible, peace is one of these very important words. And it's, it's so much more than the way we often use the word. It's not just an absence of conflict. But peace, the Bible word, right, the Hebrew word shalom, uh, it pictures uh, the state of affairs when everything is the way it ought to be, everything is made right. right. When the world is just put back together the way that God intended it, every ruling is just, every relationship is whole, every decision is pure, every action is faithful, and Jesus is all in all. He says, that's peace. He says, that's what Christ has come to bring us towards. There's a great description, if you remember in... Um, the Lord of the Rings, uh, where Sam asks if everything sad is going to come untrue. And if, if you remember the passage, uh, Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. That's peace. That's what Christ comes to bring us to. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Because a great shadow has departed. And the echo of all the joys that he has ever known fills the sound of Gandalf's laughter. Right? When everything is made right again, everything is restored, everything is put back together. And that's why it's such a great metaphor to talk about Christ as the light. Right? Because light brings freedom. It brings hope. It brings safety. It brings guidance. And Zechariah says, the light has come with Christ. 
Now, here's the one thing I want you to remember today. And I want you to remember this about preaching. That in preaching, preaching is not just teaching. It's not just explanation. It's not just giving a little bit of advice uh, that I came up with this week. Preaching is proclamation. Preaching is an announcement. Preaching is the proclamation, and my goal is to proclaim to you good news today, that Jesus Christ has come for you, that the light has shone into the darkness for you, that Jesus Christ came and lived and died for you. He proclaimed from the cross, it is finished for you. He was raised from the dead by the power of a new life. He ascended into heaven where he ever dwells to make intercession for you. All this is for you. He's come to guide your feet into the way of peace and be your life ever so unpeaceful. May it feel like you are sitting in the deepest darkness right now. Christ is the light that comes into that darkness, that brings hope for you, that brings guidance for you, to restore your faith, to renew your peace, to bring joy even in the midst of the ongoing darkness. Christ is the light who comes for you. This is for you. All because God has forgiven your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ and made you his. If you are a believer, it is yours. You may yet feel the weight of the darkness. There may yet be a long period of waiting and anticipation and expectation. But in Christ, the light shines into the darkness. And so we say, and I invite you to say, with Zechariah, blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. All God's people say together, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory because Christ is a wonderful Savior for us. Apart from him, Lord, we are lost, we are afraid, uh, we are ruined. But Lord, we are thankful that Christ has come and he's brought hope and he's brought redemption to his people. And Lord, we know how deeply we need to be redeemed. We know our sins, our iniquities are ever before us. And yet, Lord, you have brought your son, Jesus Christ, out of your great, deep, abiding love for your people that we might be forgiven. So, Lord, give us hope. Restore our hope and our joy this Christmas time. May our hearts and our minds be focused on this one reality, not our uh, lives, good or bad, but on the kingdom of God coming in Jesus Christ, in which we have been swept up, and which we've been brought into it and been redeemed, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.